Okay, welcome to Monday, one Monday, Wednesday night Bible study. You missed Monday Bible study. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Wednesday night Bible study. Let's uh, begin in prayer. Thank you, Father, for this time and bringing us together, Lord. And a few people are not here tonight, Lord, but we just thank you that we are able to uh, do a podcast, Lord, that we can listen to this at our leisure or or whenever, Lord. We thank you for those that are here, Lord. The church, uh, those that are on their way or couldn't make it, Lord, again, we just thank you that you be with us and watch over us and guide us. And so, Father, we just thank you as we uh, wind up this week and next week. Uh, Daniel, Lord, it's, it sometimes gets a little difficult with all these names and these countries that we're not familiar with. But, Lord, you you said you gave us your spirit, Lord, to help us understand, to teach us and guide us through all of this. So, Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are obviously the teacher tonight and that you uh, uh, lead us into the truth. You provoke us to thought and uh, comment, questions, response, whatever is needed uh, that we fulfill what it is that you have for us to do tonight. So in this, we just give you praise and honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, Daniel can be difficult, but if you break it down like we did last week, all the dreams and visions are right here. It's talking about four, four world empires and a fifth one that's yet to come. Um, and it's talking about the first dream was about Nebuchadnezzar. He was the one that... Uh, took him into Babylonian captivity. And so the first uh, dream was about that. Then the second one was about the uh, Medo-Persian Empire, which was basically in Daniel's time as Daniel's writing. This is where he's at. The, they are under control of Medo-Persia. Uh, they came in and they defeated what was left of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, family and his army. And so then after that, it talks about, remember, it breaks it up into Gentiles and Israel. First seven chapters, uh, and it basically has to do with the Gentiles. This is what's going on historically with the Gentiles there. But now it gets more specific from chapter 8 down. It's talking about Israel and what's going to be going on and what's going to be happening to Israel in the effects of their disobedience uh, from God. And uh, uh, so then he's talking about another world power is going to come that's going to conquer the present one. And that's going to be Alexander the Great, which is Greece. Uh, and then after that, uh, the next world power that's going to come that's going to conquer the, uh, uh, the Greek Empire is Rome. And this is the Roman Empire that's in place when Jesus comes. Right? And then it gives us some illusion. We talked about it last week and the week before about one more uh, world empire that's going to come, and that's going to be the Antichrist. And so that's where we're going to tie Revelation in to this later on. So basically, he's talking about four world powers. Uh, two of them had already come. Two of them were going to be coming. And so this, this is basically it in a nutshell. He's not going outside of that, other than to talk about uh, some a few end-time events. And so, 
what he's talking about tonight, I'm going to just kind of cut the chapter in half because there's a lot of stuff here and I want to slow it down in its narrative and it's talking about some different things and I don't want to go too, too fast on it. Uh, it's basically talking about, it's expanding on the dream, the vision that started in chapter 9. So chapter 9, 10, 11, and 12 are all one vision, all one dream. Okay? It's, it's all one long explanation of what's going to happen. It's not different things. So he's talking about what's going to be coming, what's going to be happening. And uh, one of the keys on your outline there to Daniel. Now, follow this. Daniel reveals history. This is all history. This is, this is ancient history to us. To Daniel, he's living in the, the history part, but it's future tense here. For us, this is all history. This is this has already happened, and we're just waiting for the, the end time events. So this stuff has already happened, but Daniel reveals history through a theological perspective. In other words, with God's actions in history. Whereas, when you read a history book, you read history without God in it, right? You, you, you read, this country did that, that country did that, but there's no theological reflection in there anywhere. They're just saying, this army had this battle, and they defeated that person, and then this person uh, died, and then this, this came on, and then this happened. But you don't have, but God was controlling this because of X, Y, and Z. This is what Daniel does. He's telling history... Uh, for us it's history but it's with the theological perspective in other words this is what God is doing and so when you read the Bible that's why I say what I do is theology it's we have to find God who is God what is he doing and where am I are we in relationship to what he's doing in other words what's our response who is God what is he doing where am I in, in response to this? That's that's theology in a, in a nutshell. So Daniel reveals history through a theological perspective. It's kind of like history is under the eye of God. In other words, you've got this earthly history being played out, but we sometimes forget Alpha and Omega. God is in this. God's in history. God is directing history. God is using history. That is all, all of the stuff. But again, when you read a history book, you don't you don't read God's actions in there. You know, if you're a Christian, you might see them, but in a history book, you don't get that. In Daniel, you're getting history, but you're getting it. You're getting God's interaction in the middle of it, so it expands it. So, in other words, history books tell the story without God's involvement. And so Daniel is in uh, uh, time events because it's 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 present and future historical events uh, that take place within God's plan in history. Uh, in other words, what Daniel is talking about: these things have to happen, and then, as we know, the Antichrist is going to come and all that. All these things are orchestrated by God, in a sense. God is there. God is using those things uh, uh, to to uh, um, 
bring history to to bring everything to its to bring evil and all that to its proper end. Because again, when you read the end of uh, Revelation, what there's a new heaven, there's a new earth. There's no evil. There's no pain. There's no suffering. There's no sorrow. There's everything is new. Behold, I create all things new. So he's bringing it to an end. So all of this stuff is his part of God is telling his his story in this, letting us know what's happening. And so chapter eleven, where we're at tonight, views the history of Persia, right here, in Greece. Uh, and the successors uh, of Alexander the Great from a theological perspective. So in other words, we're going to be talking about the end of the Persian rule, Greece's conquering here, and then what happens once Greece conquers, because remember Alexander the Great doesn't live very long, and then his kingdom is divided into four horns, which is the four generals. And we're going to be talking about two of those tonight over here and I'll get to them when I get to them. So thoughts, questions on that? Okay, we good? So again, just slow me down at any time because I don't want to uh, bypass anything. I don't have a time schedule when we have to finish Daniel and start Revelation and all that stuff so that I have to worry about that. There'll be no final exam. <laughs> so chapter 11, verse 1. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. Darius the Mede, the Medo-Persian Empire. You read chapter 9, just, just go back to chapter 9 for a second. It says in the first year of Darius the son, right? Chapter 11, in the first year of Darius, talking about the same thing. That's the point I'm trying to make. So if you just read, you don't really realize, well, wait a minute, he's talking about the same thing he's been talking about. This isn't something new, something different. So again, it's like when you read the creation account, the creation account is not just in, in, in chapter 1 of Genesis. It's in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And it's not two different creation accounts. It's accounts that should be layered together. It's like when you read the Gospels. It's not four different Gospels. It's one Gospel, but they're all put together to tell one story from four different angles. So we we're talking about events that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. Nothing new, but we're going to get a new cast of characters. So that's why we got to go a little slow. A new cast of characters. So, and, yeah. I'm sorry, uh, the first verse of chapter 9, and that's mm -hmm. being told by Daniel, and then the first verse of mm -hmm. 11 is being told by the angel that's. That's Daniel. Telling Daniel everything? Well, see, 21 ends, however, I will tell you what it is inscribed in the writing of the truth, yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael. Your prince, which is the angel talking. And then here, and in the first year of Darius the Media, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him, standing up for. So, yes, you, you are correct in assuming that this is still the, you know, the uh, Gabriel speaking. Okay. But Daniel's writing it. Yeah. Daniel is the author. Good.
good point. Good eyes. Uh, chapter 2 to 4. Oh, and by the way, Scripture does not have chapter headings. And this is the problem. A long time ago, the editors, when they were putting the Bible together, they put in the chapters. When you read the original manuscripts, there are no chapters. There's just one long thing. So that's why, if you look at, you know, I, I always remember when I was in school, the only thing I remember from my English class was, you do not begin a sentence with the word and. But yet, how many how many chapters and verses begin with the word and? Because it's, it's just being put together so that we can break it down and access it easier. But it was all written on, you know, on, as, one, as one thing. No chapters. Okay? So verse 2 to 4. And now I'll tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. Verse 3. And a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he arises, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out towards the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority, which he welded, for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others beside him. This is talking about Alexander the Great. His kingdom was divided up into four generals, not family members. He was a young guy when he died. He didn't have all of that. And so this is a reference here to Alexander the Great, in the, which we learned earlier on when we got the visions of the goat in the four, four horns and were like goats and four horns. And now it's just being explained more. Okay, Revelation does the same thing. It says it, and we're like a little confused, and then it says it a different way, and we're still a little, and then by the time it says it the third and fourth time, it's like, okay, now now I get where he's going with this. So it's a reference here, because again, all this is tied going back to Gen Daniel chapter 9. So it's all just one continual little, little story here. And so now he's just making a, a point uh, about this king who's going to rise up. And again, they use the word king, because number one, you didn't have elected presidents, and kings were always associated back in that time with rulers of the country. So, how else were you, are you going to say it, right? You know, um, so you don't talk about billionaires because there was no monetary system that went up to a billion dollars at that point. You couldn't do that much money, so there's no point in putting it there. So you would say. Their, their, uh, his wealth was vast, greater than all that were before him. Right? So you don't have a monetary value there. Uh, let's see. Also in here, you're going to have... Uh, let me reject chapter 2 again. Verse 2. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong enough, his riches will arise the whole empire against the realm of Greece. And a mighty king will arise. 
and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. This is as uh, uh, Alexander the Great. But as soon as he has, arises, his kingdom will be broken up. He doesn't live very long as soon as he conquers the land. And parceled out towards the four points of the compass. Remember, to the north, to the south, to the east, and the west. The, the kings divided up the country. Uh, a compass, though, not to his own descendants, again, the generals, nor according to his authority, which he welded, for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. Now, just a little side note. We're going to be talking about two of them over here, the kings of the south and kings of the north. I'll get into that in, in a second. But there's another king that comes up out of, out of Persia, and his name is Exercis. And also, he's, his name is also translated as Ahasuerus. This is the one when you read Esther, you'll find King Exercis and you find Ahasuerus. So in other words, Esther is written during this time period. Right? And we're going we're gonna to get a couple of other historical figures in this time period that I think you're going to be really, really surprised with. So, no, so when, you, when you go to Esther 1.1, it talks about Exercis and yada, yada. Well, he was one of the, the four kings there. Okay, chapter 5. And I'm going to get into this here. I'm going to go real slow with this because this can get confusing. It says, Then the king of the south will grow strong along with one of the princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His dominion will be a great dominion. Um, indeed. Now, let me hold it here. Now what's going to start to happen is you're going to have dynasties. Dynasties are when you have uh, um, Philip I, and his son is Philip II, his grandson is Philip III, and then Philip IV, who is now at war with Robert I. Whose <laughs> son Robert II gave them had Robert III and then Robert IV. So it's dynasties. You're going to start hearing that's going to start happening now. Kind of like with the Egyptians when the Egyptians were in power in Moses' time. You have the different pharaohs and, you know, the son of. And, you know, there wasn't one pharaoh. Pharaoh is just a gen generic term for the leader or the king of Egypt, like Caesar. Caesar is not one person. That's a generic title for the ruler of the Roman Empire. Okay? Verse 5. Then the king of the south. Now the king of the south. I should have got you a better map. What's right below? We're talking about this area. It's been kind of divided up. Here's Israel is down over here, land of Canaan. It's not a very good map. Syria would be up here. Uh, Babylon is over here. And so if you have this kingdom, this area divided up, this area here to the south would be Egypt. Egypt. So the king of the south is one who's ruling over the Egyptian empire at this point. 
they're conquered. They're no longer the power that they were during the time of Moses. That's a whole different story. They, they were weaker. They were now under rule of, uh, of, uh, uh, of uh, the Greek Empire. See, because again, what we're talking about here are, 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 are people that tried world domination. They, they, the, the, the world that was known at that point, uh, they, were, they were conquering. They wanted to conquer the whole world. And at that point, what was known, you know, was, was that area over there. Because obviously, you know, 1492, Columbus didn't sail the blue yet. So, verse 6. And after some years, they will form an alliance. And the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north. So if south is Egyptians, north is Syria. So one of the four horns, two of the four horns, one is from Syria and one is Egypt. This is what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. They rise up. Okay, they become stronger than the other two. Okay. And see, after some years they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement, but she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power, but she will be given up along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her, as well as he who supported her in those times. I know it gets a little goofy. Stay with me. Verse 7. But one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place, and he will come, come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. So the king of the south is going to go up and do damage up in north, right? And fortress of the king of the north, and he will deal with them and display great strength. And also their gods, with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, he will take into into captivity to Egypt. So, in other words, the the, the southern is going to is going to go and take the north and and uh, and take their wealth and take the stuff and take it back. To, to Egypt. Verse 8. And also their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold he will take them to captivity to Egypt and he on his part will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. Then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south but will return to his own land. And his sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces. One of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through and he will again wage war up to his very fortress. And the king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. Then the latter will raise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. Then the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cause tens of thousands to fall, yet he will not prevail. In other words, there's basically going to be civil war between the northern part of the kingdom and the lower, and they're going to be going back and forth. 
Now, why is this important? Why is this in Daniel? What does this have to do with God? Where's God in this? Israel's stuck in the middle. Of it's all. stuck in the middle, exactly. They're coming back, not under their own control. They're coming back during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. They're trying to reestablish the land, and it's conflict. These guys are going up here. These guys are going down there. And they're right here. They're stuck in the middle with all this. They get affected by by all of this. This is part of the reason, again, they're still under judgment. So when they come back from Babylon, they're not coming back, oh, we're going to set the temple back up. Everything's going to be good. We're going to be strong. God's going to be there and, and all of this stuff. No, they come back and they're weak. They're very weak. They're, de- they're dependent on the, on, the, on the other kings to uh, maintain peace while these two are going at it, knowing at some point they could turn on us, which eventually happens because Rome comes down and lo- Rome literally comes down and wipes all, all of them out. That's basically what happens. And so what's hard about this passage is most of us are not history scholars. Or, or we're real in tune with history, so uh, it gets a little it gets a little confusing, and and it doesn't tell you the names, but we know from history that the Egyptians down in the south, Ptolemy, Soter the first. There's a there's going to be a, there's going to be a second and a third and a, and a fourth mm-hmm. that comes up out of this. And then in the north, it's uh, Seleucus, the first uh, Nicator, and there's going to be a second and a third and a fourth, and then this is going to break off. This will actually end up uh, breaking off into uh, Antiochus and all of this other stuff. But what's interesting is, let me see, before I go into that, uh, the temple lies between all these groups, and so what happens is the king of the south to try and make a peace gives his daughter to be married here. Now if you follow England, kings of England and that stuff and, and Spain, remember that, that's how they would do that? They would, they would, they would marry and, and to, to establish a peace treaty and stuff like that. So that's what they do. It was, a, it was a ploy to try and get peace. So the actual son, this is the first, his son actually sends his daughter over here. And uh, her name is Bernice. And she's to be the wife of a fellow by the name of Antiochus II. And where have you heard the name Antiochus before? We'll get to it in a second if you don't remember. So she marries one of the offspring of Seleucus, whose name is now Antiochus II. Then what happens is the father-in-law, Bernice's father, dies. Now follow this. The one who sent his daughter to make a peace treaty, she dies. I mean, he dies. And so Antiochus, who married her, who divorced his wife, 
to marry her to make a peace treaty, he leaves her. And he goes back to his first wife. She's shaking her head. <laughs> he returns to his divorced wife, whose name is uh, Laodice. Laodice. And so what does Laodice, who had been kicked out of the temple, who had been kicked out of, because now they're out of this peace treaty, what does she do? Get even. She gets even. <laughs> and how does she get even? She poisons her husband and his son and Bernice. And then places her son, Antiochus, as king. Now why is this important? Anybody remember Antiochus? Because the guy that's going to become after this Antiochus, who's now in place, his son is Antiochus Epiphanes that we talked about last week or two weeks ago who ransacks the temple. We'll get to that in a second. So I'm just laboring all this because this is actually what's, what he's telling you was going to happen. And, the, and this stuff happens. And by the way, in Antiochus, uh, out of this Antiochus family, Antiochus, this is Antiochus III, because Antiochus IV is Antiochus Epiphanes, who's the bad guy. Well, Antiochus III, his sister, drum roll, Cleopatra. Hmm. So all this stuff is, is all there, you know. And, uh, you know, Cleopatra later on, you know, she's the one who tries to make peace treaty with Rome and all this other stuff and Mark Anthony and all that, you know, way down the line. And so that's all, that's all coming. But uh, also, another thing happens when these two are going through civil war. Uh, Do you guys remember the movie Patton? Yes. Okay. Now remember, what was one of the things that Patton said about himself? Reincarnation. Reincarnation. And if you remember in the, uh, he, was, he was a student of the Bible, and he was a student of warfare, and he claimed that he was in past wars. Okay. When the movie starts... He's where? He's down in Egypt. And he's talking to one of the other generals. And they're driving around and they're looking after a battle. And he comes across a battlefield mm -hmm. yeah. where these two were fighting. Hmm. The Carthaginians, the Carthaginians, or whatever hmm. it's called. It's that area. Yeah. And he starts talking about it. And the guy says, how do you know? And he says, because I was there. So that's what he was talking about. He was talking about this war that was going on here. So again, these are things, of, you know, not that reincarnation exists, but the point here is God's working in history. And this is history that, that we know, and we think sometimes, uh, uh, well, you know, what's going on? This isn't connected. That We have to remember theologically who's in control. 
God's in control of everything. So even what we're going through now, that's why I say we have to look at the times that we're going through now and find what is God doing? Where is this leading? How are we to pray? How are we to assemble? How are we to... Where's the church's involvement in this? Because God is active. See, when creation... When he said, let there be light, he didn't sit down and say, hey, I did a good job. He, everything to the end of the age was set. Alpha and Omega. So all of this history is there. And then God is interacting through this so that his plan to end evil. And you say, why doesn't God just end evil, period? Well, number one, why don't people just come to God because he's God? They have to be convinced. Or they have to have some overriding need. Or they have to have an understanding of who God is. They have to have an understanding of their position, that they're fallen and and cannot approach God and all these things. And so throughout history, God is showing who he is, uh, exposing evil, exposing uh, um, the demonic realm, exposing all of that stuff, and pointing towards the cross the redemption of humanity and the redemption of humanity now is that wave that takes us into the end time events where uh, Messiah returns and judges the living and the dead and all that. And so, you know, when you look at creation, there's a creator. And the creator, it's different than if you had a painting once the painter's done with it and it's hung, that's it. But with God, with creation, it's still there, but God is still active inside the painting, creating what needs to be created and doing what needs to be done. And so, again, with Daniel, what you're doing is what God is doing. He's showing us his the, the God's perspective of history and how these things are working and how God is involved in all this. Because if you don't have these kind of things like this with God showing this, then you could make a case for God's not active in history. God doesn't, God doesn't care about any of that stuff. We're just waiting for when he's going to send his son back. And if that's the case then your theological assumption is that God is not active, God is not involved, therefore, I can do what I want to do. Right? As opposed to, no, God is active, God's involved, God sees, God knows, God responds, you know, in this. It's just kind of like, you know, what do the kids do when you're home, as opposed to what do the kids do when you're not home? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. I heard the stories. You, you have a sister. So it's like that. If you know, that's why, you know, I was talking to somebody about this last week, about the fear of God. 
you know, and the fear of God is not that we're scared of God. It means that overriding respect for who God is. So that, you know, they, they used to say, you know, have you no, have you no fear of God? In other words, have you no respect that God is involved in what's going on? So again, it's, it's like my, my, my manuscript that I'm working on, my working title is Christianity, What Happened? My point is, I look at events and say things are going on because the church has not been strong when it was supposed to be strong. So what happened? How do we now become strong again in the midst of all of this? But it's all part of what God is, is doing. And so where are we in that process? Have we bottomed out? Are we now coming out of that? Is, is, are we now going to, you know, uh, this is why I study church history. Because church history, the church has not always been powerful and relevant. There's been times when it's been silent and cold and no evangelism is going on. And then all of a sudden something happens and everything changes and evangelism goes on for a couple hundred years and things are powerful and then it kind of slides off. And then even in this country with the, with the first and second uh, great awakenings and people that were coming to God in droves, you know, and then it kind of waned down. But let me chase this rabbit about the United States. The United States, and I am, I'm just saying this to myself because I got to incorporate this. I'm sorry, thank you. The Christianity in this country, in the, in the United States, has always been evangelical. So in other words, as long as this country has been here, we had the first Great Awakening, we had the second Great Awakening, and then uh, that was in the, in the, in the uh, 1700s, and the, actually there was, there was an awakening, a smaller one in the early 1600s, when people first started coming over here, but then the 1700s, and then the, the second one was in the late 17 and the early 1800s, and then in the late 1800s, you had um, you had a revival of, uh, of of preachers that were preaching. They used to call it preaching for conviction. And then in the 19 uh, early 19th century, you had uh, preachers like uh, Billy Sunday. And stuff like that that were you know out on the campaign trail and they were they were just preaching preaching and then in 1949 you know you had Billy Graham crusade coming you know and you know and now Christianity a certain segment has always been known as evangelical but my point here is that the church in America the church in the United States has always been gospel-centered, and, and if we don't do that, if we lose that, then we lose, I think, what we're supposed to be uh, in all of this. But our history has always been uh, evangelical. In Europe, that's not always been the case. Europe has been very, very cold, very, very... Uh, I mean, you know, there were times where people just were not going into into church at all. And uh, um, so that's when the church came up with especially the church in Rome, not Catholicism, but the church in Rome 
this is before Catholicism, they came up with um, different reasons. They came up with ordinances, uh, sacraments, to get people to come into the church because people weren't coming into the church. So they said, you have to bring your child in for infant baptism. That's where that came from because people weren't coming into church. So they said, well, they're having babies. They got to bring that baby to the church. Then you came up with, you now had to educate that child and you had First Communion sacrament. And then after that, it became confirmation. And then after that, it was marriage in the church. And then the last one, last rites. But really, the sacraments of the church are the Lord's Supper and uh, baptism. Those things got added on into it. So anyway, I, I know I took a diversion. There. But um, so history in God, it's it's... It's not an accident. It's, it's not, history is going this way and God is going this way and it's like the 57 meets the 91. You know, for a second, you're on two freeways at once. No, it's this way. And it's just, how are we seeing God in all of this? Because if we don't, again, if we don't have these scriptures, mm-hmm. you can say God's not active, God's not involved. But we have them, we see God is active, God is Involved. Thoughts, questions, comments? I'm going to go just a little bit farther. I'm not going to go too much here. just want to get down to uh, Antiochus and then we'll uh, deal with it the rest of it next week. Verse 13 to 20. This is really just kind of narrative. It says, For the king of the north will again rise a greater multitude than the former. With an interval of some years, he will press on with a great army and much equipment. Again, it doesn't tell you how many years. In an interval of years, it's going to happen. And it did. Verse 14, Now in those times many will rise up against the king of the south. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision. Notice, to fulfill the vision. Who gives the vision? God. But they will fall down. And then the king of the north will come, cast up a siege around and capture a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. But he will, but, verse 16, but he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hand. Now this is talking about Israel. That's a beautiful land. And who are we talking about? Antiochus. Okay. The Antiochus family, Antiochus III. And then we'll be talking about Antiochus IV in a second. And he will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace which we will put into effect, but he will also give him the daughter of a woman to ruin it. But he, but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. Then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many, but a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. So he will turn his face towards the fortress of his own land, 
but he will stumble and fall down and be found no more. Then in his place, now notice, then in his place, one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Yet within a few days he will be shattered, though neither in anger nor in battle. Uh, this this one, he just dies. What Actually, what happens historically is a uh, non-military leader, I can't think of his name right now, comes into power and he ends up uh, just, just dying. He doesn't do any warfare. So basically what's going to happen is the king of the north will arise and this is Antiochus the third, the father of Antiochus the fourth, Epiphanes. Now, just to wind this up, and then we'll have a little discussion. Verse eleven, and in his place a despicable person. Who was a despicable person? Antiochus the fourth, Epiphanes, that we talked about either last week or the week before. Okay, he's the one that goes into the temple, tears it all apart and slaughters a pig on the altar. He's just just anti anti God as you can get. Right? He's he's just an, an antichrist type person. Uh, verse twenty one and in this place a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship had not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize a kingdom by intrigue. And overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince and also the prince of the covenant. And after an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception, and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. In other words, him and his little band around him, they're gonna be a political thing, and they're gonna get a lot of political power, a lot of political influence. They're not gonna be doing it necessarily by by doing major warfare, they're going to do it politically. And this is what Antiochus IV does, is how he gains power. It's kind of like a political uh, coup almost. Verse 24, And in a time of tranquility he will enter the richest parts of the realm, and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, bounty, and possessions among them, and he will devise his schemes against the strongholds, but only for a time. He's going to come and he's going to seem like he's doing a good thing. He's a foreshadow of, of the Antichrist because he's going to be doing good things. But again, he's a political person and he, he gives gifts. And, uh, uh, you know, gosh, I, I don't want to get political, but um, right now we got going on in this country, you know, the government is giving money away to people, and what are they expecting in return? Loyalty, favor. Vote, favor, that kind of stuff, without looking at what's the motive, what's the motivation. Why is why are they doing that? They're just, I'll take it. Hey, this is good, I'll take it. You're gonna, I'll take it without the thought of, well, who's going to pay for it? And why are you giving it to me? And yeah, I like it. You're giving it to me. Like there's going to be more. Yeah, okay, sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll mark the X. You know that this is nothing new. This is nothing new. We should we should be wise. Christianity. What happened? Um, I'm gonna hold it right there. Do any of you have a copy of um, a Catholic Bible? Well, I know you do. Any of you have? We have a. Uh, 
Bible at home that has the Apocrypha books in it. Yeah. Okay. If you have a, because uh, that's what I was going to go with this. There's a, some, there are some Bibles that you can buy that has what's known as the Apocrypha, which means other writings in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And if you read First Maccabees, it tells you everything I just said tonight. Probably much better. It's a historical thing. Uh, Second Maccabees is, isn't quite as understandable. Third Maccabees is very short. But First Maccabees is a very good historical record. And... Um, About 10 or 12 books. They're fairly good historical records. They're not, thus saith the Lord. And they were put into the, into the Roman Catholic Bible because when the Reformation happened and Luther, you know, did the 93 Thesis on the Wall, in, in, which started the Reformation period, in that now he translated the Bible into German, whereas they were only doing it in Latin, because that was the language of education. Most people didn't know it, and so the point was, if you wanted to understand the Bible, you were going to have to come into the church and have somebody explain it to you. That's why they didn't want to put it in the language of the person. And so what the uh, um, what the, the church in Rome did, by the way, Catholicism, Roman Catholic Church, did not begin until the year 1545. And that's when they put this apocrypha in there. They had a council. I think it's called Council of uh, Trent, something like that. And that's when they now uh, name themselves Roman Catholic Church. Before that, it was just the Church of Rome just assumed authority because they had political authority. It was not a denomination. Okay? And uh, so anyway, uh, these books had been around for a while and people had known them. And one of them, I think it's in... I, I want to bring it. I can, I can read it to you. Um that I think it's Tobit when Christopher Columbus was trying to convince Queen Isabella that the earth was round he used uh, Tobit I believe it's Tobit and there's a line in there that talks about circumventing the world and he used that line to convince her and uh, uh, to release money and stuff like that. And that was part of the part of the, the uh, his, his his logic, you know, with that. You know, you know how he figured out the earth was round. Oh. Yeah. You know, when you when you go to the beach like you always do, and, and back in the day, the ships had a. a um, sails, and they have, you know, things that stick up like this, or even if you look at a ship, well, the farther it gets away from you, this goes down. And so his theory was that, well, if it's going down, then it must be sloped. Yeah. That's how he sat there and he figured it 
how to his he had to, he had to go do it to find out you know but anyway he gets there and the Vikings say we were first anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway where we're going to stop right now is what's on the stage is Antiochus Epiphanes and he's the one who brings abomination and stuff and he's the one that Rome will now overthrow kick him out and then it becomes the Roman Empire all uh, through the time of Christ. Okay, and so next week we're just going to fin- finish his story and tie up a few things that have to do with end time events that will lead us into Revelation the following week. Make sense? Thoughts, questions? This would make a great mini series on TV. Yeah, no, you would. You like, would. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw I, Claudius on Masterpiece Theater, uh-huh. but it was along those lines that I, Claudius was the Roman Empire yeah. from, uh, what was his name, the first one? Tiberius. No, before him. <laughs> anyway, Augustus. Augustus, All the way yeah. from Augustus to Nero. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was Augustus. Tiberius, Claudius, yes. or I mean Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and then Nero. Fantastic yeah, and I believe it was Augustus that in the time of Christ, you had the Herodian Empire. And Herod, the, the family of Herod, there were four Herods. There wasn't just one. When you read of Herod, there were actually four Herods like, like these guys. When you read the Gospels, you read of Herod, the one that was trying to kill the babies. But by the time at the end of uh, Acts, it's it's Herod the fourth, and so anyway, they got into their position in power because Augustus was out on the seas on a ship, and pirates were were coming after him. Well, uh, the Herodian, the original uh, Herod, he was a, a sailing guy, and his ship came upon it, and he saw what was going on. And so he rushed and got into the middle of all of this stuff, and he broke up the siege on on, uh, on Augustus. And so when they hit land or whatever it was, Augustus said, what can I give you? And Herod being a Jew, people don't realize that Herod was a Jew. He said, well, I'd kind of like to rule this over here. Mm-hmm. And he said, done. So that's how Herod got yeah. this thing. But see, when you read those things or, or when you see the stuff, you don't see the the biblical connection, you know, and Mark Anthony and Caesar and all these guys, you know, they were contemporaries in here. So, you know, same thing with uh, Nero. When I was a kid, I used to see those little caricatures of Nero with a fiddle, and, you know, he was a funny little guy, and yeah, that guy wasn't so funny. No. He was horrible. But he was, he was, you know, a contemporary in the book of Acts. You know, I don't realize that. So, anyway, yeah, go ahead. It's just um, aside from the main theme, but the name uh, Antiochus and also one of the ladies' names, Leodice, Leo, and in, in Revelations, I want to know if it's just um, coincidence that a church in Laodicea and a church in Antioch, and to these names. Like Antioch and Laodicea, the the woman Laodicea. Names are names. Sometimes they're they're not referenced to something. You know, uh, Antioch had been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. 
By the way, Antioch was a second church, and it was a multicultural church. People don't really realize that. It was a very multicultural church. But no, there, there's no connection no, to them being on that. Some of those names are around for a long time. And, you, and usually names come from the area. So. Yeah. 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 It's like we, we do that today. First Baptist Church of Artesia. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so. Okay, anything else? We good? Let's pray. Ah, Lord, we just thank you for tonight. Lord, it was a journey. And so, Father, we just thank you that you help us to understand this, that you, uh, as we reread it, as we go through it, and next week, Lord, that uh, all of these things uh, begin to uh, be visionary in our minds, that we see uh, one kingdom to the next. But not only do we see one kingdom to the next, Lord, but we see the King of Kings in the midst of all of this. That we see your plan in all of this. We see your workings in all of this. We see your 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 hand uh, involved in this. Lord, that uh, you are certainly the God of all things. Lord, there is nothing that you are not aware of. There isn't anything that you are not involved in, Lord, as long as it is good and true. And so, Lord, we just thank you that uh, you open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our heart to receive, Lord. And so, Lord, as we leave the sanctuary but not your presence, continue to guide us and strengthen us, watch over us, take care of us, Lord. And we thank you for our Sunday service, Lord. We thank you for uh, strengthening us, Lord. We thank you for uh, giving us increase, Lord. May you bless us, Lord. May you expand our territory. May your hand always be with us in all that we do. Uh, may nothing be for harm or evil, Lord, that we may enjoy peace. And so, Father, in all this, we just give you praise and honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.